In connection, brothers and sisters, with what you confess in Lord's Day 17 concerning Christ's resurrection from the dead, we open God's word, first of all, to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15. One Corinthians 15, where we read the verses 12 through 23. Here we read concerning the resurrection of the dead. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. We turn to the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 5. There we read the verses 16 through 21. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, him making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So far, the reading of God's holy word, let us, brothers and sisters, the text for the proclamation of the gospel this afternoon is God's word, as it is summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 17 of the Heidelberg Catechism. You find it beginning on page 531 of your book of praise. And here, the catechism continues with the second main chapter, that is, 
concerning our deliverance in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so here it is asked and answered, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his resurrection he has overcome death, so that he could make a share in the righteousness which he had obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power we too are raised up to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is to us a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. In response to the proclamation of the gospel, let us sing the stanzas one through four of hymn 36. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, every Sunday is filled with the goodness of our covenant God. Every Lord's Day is reason for celebration and thanksgiving. For each day, each first day of the week, we may remember with rejoicing the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. May we never get tired of thinking, of thanking the Lord God for that. Because of the rest and rejoicing that is ours in our resurrected Lord, all of God's people may join David in singing, for instance, Psalm 142. The righteous then shall gather around to share the blessings I have found. The righteous may do so. Not the self-righteous, but those whose righteousness is found in Jesus Christ. God's own people gathered round the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the resurrected. This afternoon we confess the truth concerning our resurrected Lord. And we do that to our lasting comfort and joy. You know, this catechism, this beautiful confession, is from beginning to end a Catechism, it is a book full of comfort, begins with what is your only comfort in life and death. And throughout, we may see indeed that comfort that we have in Christ woven into every Lord's Day. It's clear that our comfort and joy is also the intent of our catechism, which once again speaks here of benefits. Benefits, and that means treasures and gifts which are ours by grace through faith. In Lord's Day 16, we confess the benefits of Christ's death. But then we need to be further convinced, convinced that there are no treasures on earth to compare with the riches that we have received in Christ the resurrected. You will have noticed that the Catechism does not ask anything concerning the fact of Christ's resurrection. It is so, and we may be thankful for that, that at the time when the Catechism was written, that's a long time ago, 1561, getting close really also to 500 years ago, that that was really not indeed into discussion or in controversy. There were other controversies, for instance, about the Lord's Supper, but not about the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Although there are many who question the fact of that resurrection today, indeed, the fact that the author simply took it for granted is that we would not do so. 
How could we? For God's word is true, and the Bible is loaded with the reports, even of eyewitnesses, to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, mentions that after appearing to Peter and the other disciples, Christ later appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time. We don't know just exactly what was that occasion, but that's what he did. More than 500 people at one time were eyewitnesses of a resurrected Savior. And although the doubters and the unbelievers are out in force again today, the believing church of the risen Christ must not doubt, but will rejoice in Christ's resurrection. And so also this afternoon, we stand in awe of what God has done for us in his Son, even as we confess Christ's assurance that we too share in the treasures of his resurrection. Now we hear three things. We hear of the treasures of a right relationship. We hear something of that relationship this morning. We continue to do so this afternoon. We hear also of the treasure of a new life. And in the third place, of a glorious future. Three wonderful benefits. Christ's assurance that we share in the treasures of his resurrection. A right relationship, a new life, and a glorious future. First, this treasure of a right relationship. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us, asks the catechism. It's really a believer's question. The inquiry, not of someone who rudely or selfishly looks to get something for nothing. Rather, it is the wide-eyed question of someone who loves the church of Christ and the Christ of the church. And that someone wants to know the treasures of Christ's resurrection so that he or she may give thanks for them and also go to work with them in Christian love and joy. And that person and that church have much for which to be thankful, for by Christ's resurrection, he has overcome death, so that he could make us share in the righteousness, there you have that relationship which he obtained for us by his death. Christ's resurrection is actually a vibrant, a public testimony It's a statement by God himself that he, the Father, was pleased with his Son, pleased that that Son had completed everything that he came to do for us on Calvary's cross. What he did, he came to do but suffer God's wrath because of our sins. And what did he accomplish but to restore us to God? We, who in our first parents had become rebels, rebels, to restore us and to reconcile us to the Father from which we were estranged because of our sin and our guilt. And Christ's resurrection said, in effect, all done. It's all done. It testified that he had conquered death, even the second death, which was the penalty for our sins. He overcame and he overpowered it, as the song says, death could not keep its prey. No, not only that bitter and shameful death on the cross, those horrible powers of hell which reached out to him, powers of darkness which had come on him because the Father had made him to be sin in our place. 
to be sin. Not just to be acquainted with it, no, but to be sin himself. Like a sponge to be saturated with our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 In those anguishing hours in which he was bereft of all comfort because he was willing to be our substitute. And he did not only overcome these, also the powers of the first death, the darkness of the grave, the pull of the realm of the dead. He conquered these, Colossians 2.15, and he rose triumphantly. And that means that he gained for us an enormous treasure, the treasure of our righteousness. Now, there would be many people in the world today, unbelievers, doubters, who would say, what can you buy with that? Out of the mouth of sucklings, the Lord has ordained strength because of his foes. They would say, what can you buy for righteousness? And yet it is the gift of being received again into God's favor without anything standing in the way. That's a priceless gift. The joy of being united with our gift in close communion, as it once was in paradise before the fall, without fear of being turned away and of being left behind. The terror of still having to suffer the agony of hell. What a blessing that is. Do we think enough of that? Christ earned that treasure for us. It's all his to give. His is the ministry that means righteousness, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 3. Didn't keep it for himself as well he might have, because he didn't, we didn't deserve it. And yet, he put it on our account. When we come to Lord's Day 23, as you hope to come to it after some time, I realize you're still at Lord's Day 7. When you come to Lord's Day 23, then you hear more about that wonderful gift in the fact that he puts his righteousness on our account. God credited us with it, as Paul says in Romans 4. He didn't need it for himself. He was and is righteous altogether. He never did a stitch of wrong. He was and is righteous altogether. The Bible says that he became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Four more gifts for us. Wisdom from God, righteousness, holiness, redemption, because of his great love. And that righteousness, what, what is that like? Well, someone has written, said, it's really like a wonderful new set of clothes, or like a beautiful dress, even much more grand than the most beautiful baptism dress that you can think of. The prophet Isaiah called it a garment of praise, or a garment of salvation. It is that white garment of which the book of Revelation speaks in Revelation 3 and 7. Those who will have it, only those who have it, may come again into God's presence. That's why it's an indispensable garment, this righteousness. It's a most important one, the most important outfit in what we may call your and my spiritual clothes closet. If you don't have it, you are in danger of being tied up, hand and foot, and thrown into the darkness. 
Like that man in the parable of the wedding banquet in Matthew 22 who dared to crash that wedding feast. He didn't have a wedding garment. And yet those who have this garment or share in it, as the catechism says, they possess a fortune. Clothed with righteousness, it means their relationship to the Lord God, the Father in heaven, is restored. Nothing separates them anymore from the love of God. And so they have the closest communion with God in Jesus Christ. Once again, you see it before your eyes. You taste and see it at the Lord's Supper table next week. You may sink your spiritual teeth into that. It's a wonderful thing. For you know how badly that relationship was broken. And you know how terrible it can be when a relationship is disrupted. I'm thinking of a situation in which a husband and wife or two brothers and sisters are not talking because of some difficulty. Sometimes that can take a long time before they ever speak to each other again. I'm thinking of a situation where a child or children have grieved his or her or their parents because of their disobedience. Then a relationship is broken, especially when a child, a son, this time again, proved to be a liar, an unworthy son. What a terrible situation that is. can happen right in a Christian family, a Christian household. And then that parent will not only be angry, but his love will have been abused. And then there is a separation, a break from the one who loved us most. And now we were guilty of abusing the relationship between ourselves and the Lord. We rebelled against the Most High Majesty and his fatherly goodness. Our sin made a separation between us and our God. Paul writes about it in Ephesians 2. We proved ourselves to be incorrigible and unreliable liars and misfits. And our Heavenly Father was grieved with us. He could have cut us off from his love forever. He could have done that. But he didn't. Instead, right away, he promised his son and he sent his son who paid the price his one and only son who took our place, the son, that son, God's one and only son whom he loved, of whom he said when the Lord Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, remember, and the heavens opened and that dove came down and the voice was heard, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The father rejected that son that that son might take the burden of God's wrath on himself, that we might be set free. But he was raised from the dead, restored to the Father. He was on the way home, even on that marvelous first day of the week, and he took his true children with him. We were not only buried with him, says Paul in Romans 6, we were raised with him. As the son was restored to the father, so the children were restored to him as well. And so they share in that righteousness which is Christ's. No, it's even more wonderful. Paul says that in Christ, those who believe have become the righteousness of God. They, they don't just know the righteousness of God. They don't just share that righteousness of God. They have become the righteousness of God. If someone should say to you, 
Who are you, anyways? You would not be wrong if you would say in all humanity, I too am the righteousness of God. Ah, you'd have some explaining to do, but you could say that truthfully. So not just the garment, not just the dress of righteousness to call our own. No, we ourselves, his righteousness. We sinners saved. Poverty-stricken wretches, heirs of life everlasting. A people all wrong, all right, all right with God. In view of that miracle, Paul wrote to the Romans, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. All because of Christ, because of Christ's resurrection. Just think, what would be our position, our relationship to Christ if he had not been raised? Where would we have been if the grave had swallowed him up and kept him there? It would have meant that all would be lost. What would we be doing in church here this afternoon if that had been the case? It would have signaled that Christ would have been unable to deliver us from the powers of death and hell. Then death and the devil would have had the last word. And then as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, our faith would still be futile. We'd still be stuck in our sins. Then we would all be guilty of our unrighteousness. And then the whole world would be a terrible, dark place, a true hell. For then Satan would be victorious. But no, the stone was rolled away. There is this empty tomb. The Holy Spirit testified that it is so, and neither the world nor the devil and his legions can rob us of this treasure. If we believe, if we believe, if we treasure this gift and embrace it by faith, if we believe the promises contained in our baptism, when we are baptized into the name of the Son, God the Son promises us that he washes us with his blood from all our sins and unites us with him. There you have it again, that relationship. Unites us with him in his death and resurrection. So we are freed from our sins and accounted righteous before God. Oh, there are many, very many today who reject this truth altogether. They have no use for it. And not only the world, which would rather speak of human rights than receive Christ's righteousness. That world which suggests that this life is the end, while it leaves a trail of abuse and broken relationships in its wake. Even thousands of theologians, I'm not overstating it here, brothers and sisters, thousands of theologians who think of the resurrection as no more than, well, some event in which the Lord is said to do no more than to live on in the mind or the ideals of a person, like a fond memory. That's all there's to it, they say. Not in the reality of a risen Christ. Not Christ restoring believers to God. Yeah, that's those theologians and that's the world. What about us? Do we rejoice in sharing this treasure of righteousness? For as someone has correctly pointed out, we may not just be observers by this drama of Golgotha and the empty tomb. 
We must be partakers. We must be able to confess it with gladness. We too share in this righteousness. That means we must believe it. Priceless foods will not benefit us unless what? Unless you eat them. You have to eat them, right? Yes. The water of life will not quench your thirst unless you drink. And now the royal wedding feast is ready and the invitations are out. But if the guests do not come, how will they rejoice with the bridegroom and the bride? Or if they think they can show up in their wretched rags, their unrighteousness, their self-righteousness, their haughtiness, how then will they enter the wedding feast? That's why we too must rejoice in this precious treasure, rejoice in it and value it and confess it in true faith. And that's why we may not reject the second benefit, that by Christ's power we are raised up to a new life, life of obedience and service and love, a life of devotion to God and his Christ. Let us hear that in the second place. By his power, says the catechism, by his power we too are raised up to a new life. What is that power? Well, it's that power of which Christ spoke when he once said, I have the power and the authority to lay down my life, and I have the power to raise it up again. That power, the power which we may say resurrection power, it's that power of his divine majesty, the fact that he was not only man, but he was true God, in which he overcame the powers of darkness and the grave. It's the power of his word and the dynamite of his love. Oftentimes in the New Testament, especially when Paul uses that word, as he does, for instance, in Romans 1, verse 16, that power, then actually in Greek it is the word that our word dynamite came from. Dunamis, you can hear it, dunamis, dynamite. That power of God is in truly a great power, as dynamite is indeed a power. It's the power of his divine majesty. In that power, he causes the dead to be raised. The dead. And not only from an earthly grave, as he once raised Lazarus when the smell of death had pervaded the tomb, but from a grave of sin, when the stench of death is found in the hearts and on the lips of people, from our old dead human nature in which we are born, Christ indeed can raise us from that death. And then, by his word and spirit, he raises those same dead men and women and children up to a new life, a new life. Even when they sometimes are far, far gone, totally decayed. I think of what Paul once wrote to the saints at Ephesus. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But God, but God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. God made us alive with Christ. 
And that means that we must wear that new coat of righteousness, and we need to go to work with it. We need to go to work with it. Righteousness, truth, faithfulness, honor, love, obedience must be seen in our lives. For branches which have been grafted into the vine will bring forth good fruits. Either that or, says the Bible, they will be thrown into the fire. New life must be different from the old life. The old life is in slavery to the old man, what the old or a former translation used to call the old man, the old sinful, decrepit nature. And that life is characterized by those things mentioned by Paul, for instance, in Colossians 2, fornication, passion, covetousness, wanting to have more and more goods for yourself, anger, slander, foul talk, lies, besides apathy, worldliness, pride. But the new life, the new life in Jesus Christ is characterized by compassion, kindness, lowliness, patience, a willingness to forgive. And it's all bound together in love, the love of Christ by the power of the Spirit. New life is really new light. New light. That light which God has shone in our hearts through the gospel. That light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, which is worked in us right here every Lord's Day through the preaching. It's true, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, that we have this treasure in jars of clay. Our, our bodies are like jars of clay. So easily broken. Just this past week in Burlington, we buried our late brother, Hank von Dorn. Only three months after he was diagnosed with cancer. And physically, he just wasted away. But he knew where he was going. Because he knew the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He knew of his life being saved in God's care. Yet we have this treasure in jars of clay, these mortal bodies so prone to fail and to fall back and to embrace old ways. It's not for nothing that the Catechism says that by Christ's resurrection power we are raised up to a new life. We are, not just we have been sometime in the past, for this raising is not a once-off event, something that happened back in January the 1st, maybe some years ago. no. Sure, it can be a momentous event as it was for that demon-possessed man in Luke 8 when Christ cast out the devils that tormented him and he went off and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. New life, like new birth, is always radical. When by God's grace a person comes to see and to embrace the light of life, oh, you can sometimes hardly believe it was the same person. I once had the privilege of teaching someone catechism in Smithville who had come out of the world of unbelief in no time flat, even though he was already well, somewhat on in years as a young man. He would have been ready if I would have had classes four times a week and he would have attended every one. And in no time flat, in no time flat, indeed, also, he was able to speak about his newfound faith. 
It's a wonderful thing, this new life. And yet even those whose lives have been radically changed must make new beginnings, you and I, every day. Each and every day. For sin, it's like an ugly, crazy glue. It sticks to us still so very closely. A little bit like little children who are dressed in clean clothes in the morning, but they dirty them all up by noon. Yeah, you never did that. No. But we can do that, all of us, very quickly. That's the way it is with our lives. We need to be washed. We need to be changed continually. And then every day there comes again a new battle, which may be the old battle in our lives. And then there are so many failures, so many deficiencies, so many faults. That's why it is said in the form of baptism that we will come to shortly that no one will see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. No one. Unless he's born again. And that's said especially with a view to the task of the parents who have a duty to train their children in the fear of the Lord. That God's covenant children, so richly blessed, so highly favored in having been set apart for the Lord, may know their covenant obligations. That they may grow up to fight the good fight of the faith. That they may know that Jesus Christ, who died for them, was raised for them. He lives for them. And he comes for them, that by his power they might live in all righteousness under their only teacher, king and high priest, Jesus Christ, and valiantly fight against overcoming sin, the devil, and his dominion. Thanks be to God, brothers and sisters, that we don't have to do this in our own strength, for then our striving, as Martin Luther said, would be losing. What does the Bible say? His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Every morning, tomorrow morning, is the morning of a new day, of new life. Every day Christ is there for us, to take us by the hand, but especially to take us by the heart, to mold us after his will. For the power of Christ, the resurrected, is not in short supply. He doesn't run out of that power. Although he went home to his father, he did not abandon his children whom he loves. Lo, I am with you, said the Lord to his quivering disciples who were so afraid that they would never see him again. I am with you till the close of this age. Therefore, says Paul, we do not lose heart. Though there are many disappointments, Though our bodies get old and crumble, though we groan when we realize that we are but dust and sinful dust at that, yet inwardly, inwardly, we are renewed day after day. And so it must be that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ will recognize their calling. So there cannot be dead branches on a vine. So the whole body which eats the same spiritual food and has tasted the same spiritual drink must live and grow in that new obedience. Let's ask ourselves, after hearing the glad tidings concerning the Christ, how have we grown in faith, in love, in the knowledge of God in Christ? The brothers, elders who come on home visits would have every right to say to you and to me, dear brother and sister, 
You have heard the gospel now for so long. The minister has had a whole series on whatever, indeed, Bible passage. How have you grown? How have you grown in faith and in love? Are you now the more eager to let your light shine also in your community? Are you making progress in bringing forth fruits of life? Is there genuine love for your brother and sister, even for the one with whom you have difficulties, and for that stubborn child, that sometimes insensitive parent, that office bearer who was so quick to judge? For new life, like a new spring, will certainly be seen, will it not? If not, who are we kidding if we say that we love the Lord? Indeed, who are we fooling if we say we are the Lord's, if we do not obey and do not love God's commandments? Then let us then go to him. Let us go to the Lord and beg him to renew our lives daily, so that instead of a stench, our lives might be filled with the fragrance of Christ, the fruits of the Spirit. And then we may be of good courage, for there's even a third benefit and a glorious one for Christ's resurrection is to us a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. Let us hear just a bit more about that. Our Lord knows, brothers and sisters, that your life and mine is subject to so many doubts and fears. We may not want to admit it, but it's true, isn't it? Many doubts, many fears. A few years ago, a colleague of mine who had preached the word for many, many years said to me, Chris, do you think it's all true? Do you think it's all true, this Bible? A man who had faithfully proclaimed the gospel for many years in an older age, the devil still wanted to get hold of him and make him doubt. We need to be aware of that. Few days go by, but we are reminded that our life is but that mist, a mist of which James speaks in his letter. It appears for a little while, and then it vanishes. The psalmist long ago said the same, my days vanish like smoke. And though we are born again and our spirits are renewed, death so often stares us in the face. Indeed, we hear indeed from the scriptures that our death is a passage unto life everlasting. The Catechism speaks about that too. But yet what about our bodies that are buried and buried in a grave and turn into dust? What about that life for which you and I were created, that with body and soul we might serve the Lord with gladness, without the threat of some horrible accident, the body breaking down, the mind deteriorating, eyesight failing, and you and I breathing our last? Well, Christ's resurrection from the grave and from his death is his sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. A sure pledge. It's not doubt. It's not subject to doubt or to error. It's not the maybe of man whose word is often unreliable, man who might have good intentions and make solemn promises, but who of himself can't keep them. Christ's resurrection is God's amen to his promise made long ago that the day would come 
when his people would stand on the new earth, shoulder to shoulder with Jesus Christ and his whole church, a promise that was embraced by Job on the ash heap when he confessed, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And then he also said, after this, my flesh has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. Job believed in the resurrection of the body. In my flesh I will see God. Even in that new body made like unto Christ's, that wondrous, glorious body of which Paul sings in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ's Resurrection is his pledge and his proof of it. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. For Christ is the first fruits, his resurrection the guarantee that there will be a harvest of all those who belong to him. What a wonder. What a wonder. The Catechism will have much more to say about it in Lord's Day 22 when we confess the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Yet we do it here. For here too we remember that we are children. Covenant children. God's children. And so heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs of Christ. That is, as Paul writes in Romans 8, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. If we are prepared to confess the truth concerning our Lord, even if it should cost us our lives. For God's gracious pledge is his word, and that word, it says so itself, is a two-edged sword. Either we embrace it, and believe it as his sure and unbreakable word, in which case a glorious and blessed future awaits us, or we reject it, as the world does, and face only a dark and bleak and frightening future indeed. May then Christ's resurrection be before us all. May his living pledge excite us and fill our hearts with gladness. May our hearts, hearts, eyes be fixed on Christ and not on this world. And may we remember that our citizenship is in heaven. May we rejoice even next week as we go to the supper table of the Lord in that confidence that this Lord Jesus Christ, whose death we celebrate, comes again, comes again for those who are his. On that day, God's mighty voice will be heard. Behold, I make all things new. And then the Lamb of God will be the lamp, the light of his city. Then death will be no more, and sighing, all sighing, will have been abolished. Then all Christ's treasures and gifts will be displayed. Then we will live, and we will work, and we will play, and we will dance to the glory of God forever. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, treasure Christ's resurrection and live. Amen. <laughs>